This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Money does strange things to people, as Anna Lake Jew notes in her latest book for Harvard University Press. In Madagascar, loggers flush with cash from the Rosewood trade don't quite know how to react to their newfound largesse, sometimes demanding less money for their wares out of confusion. Rumors abound in Madagascar of how loggers make their money. There's no way that simple wood could garner so much profit, people say, so observers think they must be trading something else, like human bones. Rosewood, Endangered Species Conservation, and the Rise of Global China by Anna Lake Ju studies globalization, the rise of China, and global environmental politics through trade in one commodity, Madagascar Rosewood. She is the professor of environmental policy at Vaheningren University in the Netherlands, a veteran of the United Nations Environment Program in Geneva, and a former Peace Corps volunteer in Madagascar. Her work has been published in Science, Geoform, and Political Geography. In this interview, Anna and I talk about Rosewood, the commodity, the cultural product, and the conservation target in China and Madagascar. So, Anna, thank you so much for joining me on the Asia View Books podcast. You know, I want to start with, you know, Rosewood itself, you know, as a thing, as a as a commodity, as a natural product. You know, where does it come from? What kinds of climate does it grow in? And, you know, I guess what's the what's the forest that it grows in? Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um yeah, so rosewood is a precious tropical hardwood. It grows throughout the tropics in Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, usually in more humid tropical forests, like you would think of a tropical rainforest, but also sometimes in drier climates, like in West Africa, in the savanna region as well. So, I mean, what what makes what makes rosewood so, I guess, so precious, so so prized? Like, what what sorts of goods used for in like it's how's managed to gain so much cultural status. Yeah. So rosewood in Madagascar has been logged for a while since before the colonial period actually and sent to France primarily. Um, but since 2000, it's been revived the logging industry in Madagascar due to demand from China. 
and the demand in China is much, much, much more high than in France, and, and the value of the wood has become much higher. And so, and it's due to this unique cultural heritage that the wood has in China that it doesn't have anywhere else in the world. Um, it's it, essentially this type of wood is deeply associated with the type of traditional Chinese furniture that dates back to the Ming Dynasty, so 1300s, 1400s in China. And at that time, the wood was used to make thrones for emperors, uh, desks and wardrobes for the Chinese imperial literati. It was, it was deeply associated with the elite classes in late imperial China. Um, and really one of the foremost symbols of, of social status one could attain in, in dynastic China at the time. Um, and I guess now, fast forwarding to 2000 and onwards, as Chinese consumers get more wealthy, it's not just Western style consumption that they're engaging in, but this kind of this desire to re-engage with Chinese traditional culture. And rosewood has become one of the foremost status symbols that's re-emerged in this in this consumer culture that China is now experiencing. So, I mean, let's let's talk about China today. I mean, you you in the beginning of your book, I talk about some of the some of the stories that have come up about, um, you know, newly wealthy Chinese people trying to um, trying to buy these cultural products, bring back these cultural products. You tell the anecdote of the businessman who bought historical bowls looted from the summer palace, then shocked onlookers by drinking from them. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit about how the how 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 a lot of, a lot of this newfound wealth in China has been expressed through, I guess people trying to buy these cultural products, kind of get this cultural status. Yeah, yeah. I I mean I think to understand the current revival in this in in this traditional icon, it's first important to realize that it's not just this continuous valuation of the wood. So from the, the late imperial China to, to now, um, that there was this drastic upheaval during the Cultural Revolution. Um, so that would be 1966 to 76, like this drastic upheaval in the value of all tr traditional icons in China, but rosewood being, being one of them. And so I think that the people who experienced that, um, that, that upheaval of the Cultural Revolution and sometimes had their rosewood furniture stolen from them or just confiscated by, um, you know, the Red Guards or uh, stolen and, and burned in the streets, that type of thing. Um, the people experiencing that or who have have experienced that are are now getting wealthier, getting older and wealthier and buying back that kind of lost cultural heritage. So it's it's not just a seamless transition kind of from the dynastic period and then a revival in consumer spending now. Um, but that being said, it is this kind of uh, now we're seeing this type of uh, um conspicuous consumption to a certain extent of of uh, elite Chinese cultural goods that are that are just very valuable um, by people who who you know endured the hardships of the Cultural Revolution and came out of the Cultural Revolution for example the the person mentioned in the book he was a, a taxi driver and and had good investments and became a billionaire and and you know bought this this chicken cup this porcelain cup looted from the um, Beijing Summer Palace long ago. So let's. I like to just kind of shift now to to 
to Madagascar, you know, which is which is the source of where um, all this rosewood is coming from. Uh, you know, you're traveling there, um, I guess, as part of your research. What was that trip like, and what did you actually experience while you were there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I initially before my research I lived in Madagascar as a Peace Corps volunteer. So and and in the part of the island, um, like this northeastern corner of the island, where the rosewood trade is kind of what they call the heart of the rosewood trade, um, because it's the region of Madagascar where rosewood still grows, where it hasn't been log- logged to extinction basically. Um, and so that was in 2010, um, yeah, 2010, beginning of 2011. And um, I lived there for about a year and it was, you know, I saw this was at kind of the peak Rosewood boom time. Um, I, in the, in the town that I was living in, you could see uh, like, you know, new motorcycles. Um, anytime they had houses with big walls, they would, people would say that it's rosewood behind those walls or those walls, you know, are built from rosewood and in a sense that it's rosewood money that, that built the walls. Um, and there, there, sometimes there'd be like parties on the side of the road and they'd say, oh, well, that's a rosewood boss having, having that party. Um, so it was, it was, uh, there were moments of kind of like, you know, abundance that you wouldn't normally see otherwise in, in this kind of rural Malagasy town, basically. Um, and, and I saw it and, and, and so I, you know, kind of, uh, experienced the Rosewood trade first by just those, like the, the economic fallout coming, coming from the trade, um, but I also went into the field, went into um, Maswell National Park during that time as well, and, and actually saw the logging as well happening. They they bringing rosewood logs, you know, through the villages eventually to the coast for export as well. Um, and that was, yeah, in the beginning of 2011. And then I returned in 2014 and 2015 to do field work, so as to do my PhD research and returned to the same the same place. The rosewood boom was not as, as high, quite as high. In fact, in 2014, people were just coming back from like this big pre-election boom, logging boom that happened um, for the 2013 elections at the end of 2013. So, um, so yeah, so I heard a bunch of stories about, about rosewood logging um, for the pre-election boom where the government essentially allowed somewhat of a rosewood free-for-all. So who actually like are, you know, could you describe some of the Rosewood loggers that you're able to meet if you were able to, you know, kind of what's, what's their, what are their lives like? What are their backgrounds like? Yeah, well, so I mean, it ranges. So there's many loggers that come from the villages, you know, surrounding where Rosewood grows, surrounding the national park. Um, and these are typically very poor people make less than a dollar a day. Um, just live in, you know, like huts, Ravnala huts outside of the park, um, sleep on straw mattresses, don't have electricity, um, do some subsistence rice farming probably. Um, and then it ranges from there to kind of the higher level traders or the, um, the, the youth that comes from the city to come to the countryside to log rosewood and they're a, a little bit more well to do, but, but probably also definitely not rich, um, all the way up to kind of the highest level traders that, that they wouldn't be engaging in the logging themselves, but, 
you know, live in the cities um, and and um, and ultimately handle the export business and they can, you know, are, can be billionaires. <laughs> you know, you, you know, one thing that kind of struck me in kind of reading the the stories you would tell about these Rosewood loggers is that they seem to be they they seem to be surprised at how much money they actually could make from from rosewood logging and you tell stories about you know how there would be loggers who when they were told how much money they would get from i guess from their wares that they would turn around and say oh no no that's too much money you have to pay me less <laughs> just out of confusion that they would actually be paid so much or you know loggers kind of flush with cash just doing strangling with their money like throwing it at, like i guess throwing it at store people and not paying attention on how much money they were spending or or throwing away just kind of like how like, how did I guess these these loggers kind of deal with their with their newfound largesse? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very strange for someone who goes from sleeping on a straw bed, for example, each night to you know making up to a thousand dollars in a day. Um, but but the 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 thing about the the money, this kind of influx in money of money in Madagascar in the region. Is that it's it's this region is known for two things. It's known for rosewood and it's known for vanilla as well. And both have this boom bust dynamic where you get a lot of money coming in, um, in in a short period of time. So so vanilla is this other export commodity that really has extreme fluctuations in price. Um, so so together, rosewood and vanilla kind of create this culture of spending. Um, that they call, in Malagasy, you call hot money, right? It's vulamafana, it's hot money, where you get money and as soon as you get it, you want to spend it. You want to spend it, and, and sometimes in like very obvious ways, like mundane trips to the bar, um, where, where you just buy, you know, all the alcohol in the bar, or, or you go and say, what's the finest liquor? I'll have that, and then take like, you know, I'll have the whole bottle and just take a shot and leave, or, or, or what have you. Um, but sometimes a more more um, like bizarre spending spending uh, stories that I heard about, like, you know, pasting money to chameleons or right. Another story was about buying a box of mangoes uh, and then just smashing it by the side of the road, smashing like ripe mangoes. Um, and and so all of these are hot monies of Vula Mafana stories. Um, and with the logging, you get them, but with vanilla, you really get them as well because the vanilla crop during boom times, it can be, vanilla can be more than the price of silver. And um, you, farmers, rural farmers that really don't make a lot of money get paid in one lump sum for their year's crop. So when the price is high, which is only, it's not, it's not frequently, but when the price is high, yeah, people do ridiculous things with the money. And um, these two export commodities are linked to together in this way through this culture of hot money spending. You know, I, I'm going to sound like a development consultant when I ask this question. But I mean, it's the kind of thing people will like look at this and go like, ah, this is a problem with financial literacy. They don't know to save money, invest money. I mean, but... I guess kind of in, in this hot money thing, I mean, how like psychologically have they dealt with kind of this like boom and I said this boom and bust cycle where, um, you know, you'll have really good times, but then of course you'll have really bad times too. How do they kind of, how do they make it through these, this like very strong commodity boom and bust cycle? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to look at it from a development lens, it is like highly problematic. Um, and you can, to a certain extent, say, right, there's in this region, there isn't a culture of savings because honestly, there hasn't been a need for it. This The vanilla boom and bust, I mean, vanilla has always been boom and, and bust, but since 2000, um, the government, the Malagasy government kind of liberated the price. Um, so they stopped setting the price so much so that it really, so that farmers would experience the, the highs and the lows. And this was kind of at the behest of the IMF and the World Bank to kind of liberate prices and have free markets and whatnot. And so it was, and after they did this, so they did this in like the late 1990s, I suppose. And then in 2000, there was a cyclone that devastated the crop and um, uh, the price shot into up into uncharted territory. And so, and so since 2000, what's happened is this like boom and bust in vanilla, then rosewood, then vanilla, then rosewood. Um, and it's really kind of, yes, been unproductive in terms of development because it's unreliable and people don't have a culture of saving money. And even more than that, it's money is a liability to keep the money, to keep that amount of money, thousands of, of, of the equivalent of thousands of dollars in one's hut, Ravenella hut, right under your mattress or whatnot is, is a huge liability. So getting rid of the money sometimes is, is, is better. And if you can get rid of it in durable goods and investments, like buying a tin roof or something, then that's good. But there's only so, so many circuits for, for this sudden influx of money to go to. So it's not always the, um, these long-term investments that would be better for development. You know, so another thing that kind of struck me kind of reading, reading your stories from the field as it were, um, is like, is, is the fact that like no one, I mean, no one is too expansive, but the fact that people in Madagascar didn't believe that Rosewood could make people so much money. Um, and so there's like all these conspiracy theories as to kind of how loggers were actually making their money. Um, I think human bones is, is one that I, that kind of jumped out at me, um, but kind of how does the rest of Madagascar society kind of see the rosewood trade? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the people I talk to in the region um, talking about rosewood. Yeah, it, it, for them, it does not make sense why this particular wood makes so much money. Right. I mean, woods, they, they understand the value of wood, um, but like compare rosewood to uh, palisander, for example, which is not demanded in China at, at, at the moment, and so not like much less the price, um, and and they're not quite sure why why this particular wood makes so much money. And the same with vanilla, actually. This like, but people in Madagascar do not use vanilla to cook with at all. Um, they don't use vanilla to to really do anything with. It's only for export. Um, and and when you tell these people. Uh, and talk to them about, well, vanilla is used kind of as a spice for cooking, for flavor and fragrance. Uh, I got the, um, the suspicion talking with some of my friends about it that they don't think it's just for that. <laughs> like there must be some other explanation. Like they've heard that explanation, but there must be some other explanation as well. Uh, and so then you get this this bones, the bone, like the, um, the, the rosewood bosses that export the ro rosewood from Madagascar are actually dealing in bones, which to Malagasy people is a much more valuable, like it's a culturally speaking, bones are like probably one of the most culturally important material substances 
um, in, in Malagasy culture. So it's like, it makes more sense that they would be worth so much more. With vanilla, some of the stories are about, like it's used to make dynamite or um, tires is, is one of them, but, but something much more pivotal, like more pivotal pro- products than simply like flavor and fragrance, for example. Um, so that's people in in the region having all sorts of uh, conspiracies about about the products. And, and I think larger, like looking at the country in general, um, I mean, I'm not most of my research was definitely in the region. So I'm not going to speak for for the country as a whole. But just looking at reporting on the topic, um, it, the, the, these bosses that are in the Northeast that are um, they ex- export rosewood, but they also oftentimes export vanilla as well. They're known at the country level. They're in the national government. Many of many of them are members of parliament or or pro- play other pivotal roles within the government. So they're very much known, and um, yeah, they're just known that they've become rich from these two export commodities that they've kind of monopolized the trade over. You know. We've gone this far in our conversation to actually talk about the environmental impact of rosewood logging. Um, I wonder if you might kind of talk about what the environmental damaged effects of the rosewood trade is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so rosewood is, there are many species of rosewood in Madagascar, but they're kind of linked together uh, when dealt with environmentally, when dealt with in terms of trade restrictions. They're, the, the genus is Dalbergia, so there any, any species within that genus, it's not allowed to trade, um, to export, or to trade locally, although it happens quite a lot. Um, but so environmentally speaking, like how this logging is done uh, can, contributes to the environmental impacts. But it turns out that because there is such little mechanization of the logging um, and because rosewood's relatively not not densely populated within any given forest, it's not like you don't have a um, you wouldn't have a clear cut of rosewood because you wouldn't have that many rosewood trees in, in a given hectare. Um, the environmental impacts are not so bad. I mean, they're to the overall ecosystem, but to the species itself, there it will be, um, and probably is now close to commercially extinct past a certain age. So past, um, well, or past a certain diameter really is, is past 25 centimeters at, at breast height, basically. Um, you won't be able to find rosewood trees, um, in the national parks, except maybe at the most remote, hardest, hardest places to get to at that size. But at less than that size, um, you can. They're, they're not valuably, you, you can't export them, so they're, they're around. So it's kind of an interesting environmental dilemma where I think locally, many Malagasy people don't see it as endangered at all. They say it grows everywhere. It's, there, there's a lot of it. It's just younger um, younger younger individuals, younger trees growing. Um, but then at the global level, if you think about it as an endangered species, um, it, it, there clearly is an environmental impact. And so how does this all link back to, to China? I mean, in, in kind of the, the latter parts of your book, kind of bring it back to China's approach to conservation, to environmental policy. How does the rosewood kind of trade then link back to China's approach to global environmental governance. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I think we can see China's approach kind of by first looking at the Western approach to environmental governance in Madagascar and to the Rosewood trade. Um, and Western, I mean, like the World Bank, the, the UN, to a certain extent, USAID, um, you know, big international donors and NGOs, Conservation International, for example, working um, on the island and com- trying to combat the rosewood trade. So the Western approach has been very much stop the logging, stop the logging at all costs, stop the export. And it often involves like militarized intervention, right, where the government sends in um, yeah, military style intervention to basically shut down the trade that's happening um, among everyone who's probably not connected to the government. Uh, If you do have elite connections, you probably can keep exporting the rosewood. Um, So it's a type of, what happens is a type of monopolization of the trade. Um, Because of this militarized style intervention to basically just stop the logging at all costs, um, but leave it going for only those in charge. Um, that's kind of what 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 I, my experience in talking to the people in uh, in living in the region and dealing with these kind of military interventions that happen every so often. Um, but I think a more productive approach, and I think something that local local people living in the Northeast would be more receptive to, is kind of focusing more on reforestation or developing kind of a sustainable forestry industry or just collectively deciding what what do they want to do with with the rosewood that's that's left as opposed to just prohibiting the trade entirely and how might some they grow more rosewood and and this is where you can look to china because china is growing rosewood you know by far more than any other country and and they have like a entire techno scientific commercial enterprise to to how to grow rosewood at a large scale and make it profitable but also use the these rosewood forests to kind of um replace uh replace eucalyptus forests and make the landscape um more more sustainable more um less less having uh, clear cuts every three to five years and keeping trees on the land for much longer. So I think China in, in their rosewood growing in their rosewood plantations um, provide this kind of alternative that many people in Madagascar would benefit from and would prefer over Western style interventions um, that are highly militarized and I would say do more harm than good. So I mean, there's obviously like this big debate about China's environmental policy. You know, there's um, there's the side that kind of sees this all as um, I'm trying to think of the right word to describe this. Um, they kind of sees China's efforts towards conservation as kind of paper thin. You know, they they talk up climate change, they say they're investing in green stuff, yet they're still buying up all these commodities overseas. Um, inversely, you have the you have the Argument says like China is quote unquote doing better than the West in terms of climate change because they actually make it a matter a core matter of policy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, unlike the West, where it's a lot of again a lot of talk and not a lot of action. I guess how do you kind of see China's approach to to conservation, to environment, to environmental protection, to um, environmental governance? Um, I guess how how do you see like where where do you think the the line actually falls in terms of what china is trying to do mhm yeah i mean i definitely 
understand the arguments that Chinese environmental efforts are paper thin or or a lot of times the arguments are it's really there the deeper motivation is more political control um, rather than actually environmental improvement but really a, a means to control people by controlling the environment controlling pollution and whatnot and and I totally understand that that uh, argument and I, and it makes sense I agree with it but I do think on some level there is something something very fundamental in happening in with Chinese people right now about being fed up with pollution, being fed up with environmental issues and injustices, and demanding from leadership environmental improvement. And in that sense, you can see the delivery of environmental improvement as kind of, you know, a, an attempt to have to meet the demands of the people and have social stability and whatnot. Um, so. So I think there is some sincerity to it, to China's environmental efforts on that in that vein. But I also think that when we talk about environmentalism in China, it's it's kind of we're talking about something a little bit different. Um, it doesn't have the same history of environmentalism in the West, and and like we really can see that when you look at a place like Madagascar, for example, where all Western influence in the country is very much around. Right, protecting wilderness and keeping these national parks, keeping these spaces, uh, you know, protected, largely free from people, biodiverse, pristine. Right, basically to keep them pristine. This is the why we don't want people in there logging rosewood because we want them to be pristine and biodiverse and 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 whatnot. And I think environment Chinese environmentalism is you could say a little bit more utilitarian. You could it's it's it has a different history that's not concerned with keeping wilderness pristine, but but meeting needs of people, having a harmonious environmental system where you know it's people can be more or less in harmony with their wider surroundings, but not in a nature wilderness state, right? And the China's rosewood forests demonstrate this very well, this this um, kind of ecological, um, uh, like very heavy handed for the part of humans tampering with ecologies, but to make them better, to make them more ecological or whatnot. It's not an attempt to recreate a natural state. So I think when it comes to these ideas of nature and how to approach them at the global level, we see a big disconnect between approaches in China versus approaches in the West. And again, seeing how they resonate in a place like Madagascar, I think many people living there might be a little more sympathetic to a more utilitarian, more human-centered approach that you do see a little bit uh, more in China in terms of develop using resources to develop sustainably as opposed to kind of a pristine protectionist approach that comes um, largely from Western conservation groups. So I have, I think, one last question for you. And kind of like, what's happened, do you, do you know what's happened with the Rosewood Market, the Rosewood Loggers in Madagascar, kind of since you did the, the lion's share of the research um, for your book, how has the how has the market changed in Madagascar or in China? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so Madagascar rosewood the market really peaked in in 2013 2014. It was a big boom, and um, in China since then, because I mean, and especially now with COVID, 
um, what what I've talked to dealers and what they say is that there's still a high price, but little turnover. Um, so people are still holding on to their rosewood and not wanting to sell it for cheap, um, but not a lot of market turnover, not a lot of additional buying. Um, but we have to remember that rosewood from Madagascar is, the, of all African rosewood varieties, it's the most expensive. It's it's um it's 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 very a very expensive rosewood, and that other rosewoods from different countries in Africa are a lot cheaper. And with them, we do see more recently a lot of turnover, a lot more cutting, especially in West Africa, um, and a lot more exports to China. So I think. Um, I think overall the market maybe has shifted a little bit from Madagascar to um, West African countries, uh, where the wood's a bit a bit cheaper, um, and um, the politics of the situation are a little bit different at this point in time. So I think with that, that's a good place to interview with Anna Lake Ju, author of Rosewood: Endangered Species Conservation and the Rise of China. Anna, I actually have two final questions for you, which are: uh, Where can people find your work? And what's next for you? Yeah, um, so uh, I'm happy for people to buy the book at Harvard University Press. <laughs> um, and uh, now I think what I'm moving on to look at is, um, um, yeah, so in, in the book, I talk about uh, reforestation efforts, rosewood reforestation efforts, and now I'm looking at kind of tree planting in China more broadly, not just in terms of rosewood, but in terms of um, large scale tree planting to combat climate change. So kind of using land use and carbon sequestration via tree planting, via increasing grasslands as a climate change reduction strategy. And having and looking at efforts where China does that within Chinese borders, but also in um, other countries outside of China as well. So kind of these environmental efforts to combat climate change via large scale tree planting drives. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to ajwbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. The Airbnb Podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to continue to support us interviewing Excuse me, support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Lan Samantha Chang, author of The Family Chow. But before then, thank you so much, Anna, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.